Hello and welcome to the February 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Knows podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up uh, this month, President Donald Trump announced his nominee to fill the vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court on January 31st. He went with Neil Gorsuch, a judge currently sitting on the Denver-based U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. What should our listeners know about him, Art? Well, they should know, first of all, that he has all the credentials for an easy confirmation. He uh, has uh, excellent legal education. He uh, served on the Tenth Circuit for about a decade. He uh, clerked in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, for Justice White, who was retired at the time, so he was shared between Justice White and Justice Kennedy. Uh, if he's confirmed, he will be the first former clerk to sit on the Supreme Court together with a justice for whom he clerked. Uh, he will restore the Republican majority on the court to where it was before Justice Scalia died. And uh, at least one study about the how you could place judges ideologically along a spectrum suggested that he's more conservative than Justice Scalia, but not quite as conservative as Justice Thomas. So he would not, if he joined the court, be the most conservative justice, but he would be the next to most conservative justice. Uh, in terms of the impact on LGBT issues, uh, this is a, a subject of particular concern, of course, to our listeners on this podcast. Uh, since he would be replacing Scalia, who was a sure vote against any LGBT rights claim on the court pretty much, uh, that doesn't seem to change the vote on the court. I mean, the one case in which uh, Scalia actually wrote a unanimous decision for the court that was a, that won applause from LGBT uh, law followers and commentators was the unanimous decision in the Oncal case holding that Title VII could be applied to a same-sex harassment claim. And that's important because Scalia said in that case that Title VII could be interpreted to apply not only to the kinds of cases that the drafters of the statute envisioned, but to comparable kinds of cases. Uh, a, a statement that has been lifted somewhat out of context by the EEOC in its important rulings recognizing gender identity and sexual orientation claims under Title VII uh, has also been quoted by uh, federal judges in similar cases. So... Uh, it seems to me that uh, uh, that may be an instance where Scalia went further than uh, Gorsuch would go because Gorsuch is, by all accounts, a committed textualist and originalist. And uh, so he might not go as far as Scalia went in that case in terms of adopting a more expansive interpretation of Title VII. This is important to us because uh, three federal courts of appeals are now considering the question whether sexual orientation is covered under Title VII, and it's hard to believe that out of those three we won't end up with some kind of circuit split that will get that issue before the Supreme Court probably in the next term. So uh, one of the first LGBT rights issues that Gorsuch might confront on the Supreme Court would be whether Title VII covers sexual orientation claims 
depending how fast he's confirmed, uh, he might end up confronting the question whether uh, Title IX covers gender identity claims because that case, uh, we, we didn't actually know when it was going to be uh, heard when I first drafted the cover story for this issue of Law Notes. I believe uh, since it's now in the production process, it's been adjusted to reflect this. Uh, the Gloucester County versus GG case is going to be heard on March 28th. Uh, the normal time that it takes for someone to be confirmed as a Supreme Court justice is usually about two months. Uh, this may string out a little longer because the Democrats uh, have already announced uh, pretty strong opposition to him. Uh, in terms of his record on LGBT issues on the Tenth Circuit, for some reason, the luck of the draw, he was not on the three-judge panel that decided the marriage equality cases. Uh, that was during uh, 2014. Uh, actually, the Tenth the Circuit was the first circuit court of appeals to rule in favor of marriage equality in the case from Utah. Yep. And then subsequently in a case from Oklahoma, he was on neither of the panels, and those cases didn't go on bank. The states petitioned directly for cert. Uh, there was also an important uh, gender identity discrimination case decided by uh, the Tenth Circuit shortly after he joined the court, but he was not on the panel for that. Uh, so the only hints we have, really, in terms of LGBT issues are that he was on two circuit court panels involving discrimination claims uh, by transgender individuals, but he didn't write an opinion in either of them, uh, although he was part of uh, unanimous panels in both. Uh, one of them involved a transgender prisoner who was unhappy about uh, the medical treatment that she was receiving in prison. This is someone who had transitioned before she was incarcerated. Uh, so she w was already presenting as female, uh, was sent to a men's prison nonetheless uh, because the uh, prison officials uh, went based on legal gender. Uh, this was in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma did not recognize her as a woman. So she went to a men's prison. Uh, she was deprived of her hormone treatment for a substantial period of time. Finally, the state uh, gave in and started providing hormones, but she complained that the dosage was too low. Uh, she also wanted to be allowed to wear feminine undergarments, which is an important part of the psychological identity. Uh, and uh, they refused that. Uh, she sued them. And uh, the problem she ran into, first of all, as a pro se litigant, was a complaint that fell short in various technical ways that already... Uh, cut against her uh, being able to obtain anything. She was seeking injunctive relief, and uh, the court found that it was blocked by Tenth Circuit precedent from ruling on the claim uh, concerning uh, deprivation of hormone treatments because it seems there was already a prior three-judge panel decision finding that transgender inmates do not have a constitutional right to hormone treatments. That's dating back to 1986. Uh, as I observed in my cover story for this issue of Law Notes, 1986 is like the dark ages when it comes to transgender law in the federal courts. Uh, so that's really an obsolete precedent, but it hasn't been overruled in the Tenth Circuit, and the U.S. Supreme Court has never addressed the issue. So this panel, uh, out of an excess of caution, if for no other reason, said we're bound by circuit precedent, we can't rule on that. Uh, she had also tried to assert an equal protection claim, and they pointed back 
to the Et City decision, which is that three-judge panel decision uh, from shortly after Gorsuch joining the Tenth Circuit, but which he, he was not on that panel. And this decision said that uh, gender identity claims under the Equal Protection Clause would not get heightened scrutiny, uh, merely rational basis, and that she had failed to allege uh, anything that would persuade the court that the prison authorities didn't have a rational basis for the actions they took in her case. I, I think some someone who was very sensitive to the issue of transgender people in prison would have been troubled by this ruling. Uh, why they would deny a transgender inmate who was presenting as female feminine undergarments is a puzzle to me. I, I don't know what penal, penological goal that uh, that preserves. Also, she was trying to get a uh, a transfer to a different building because she claimed she had a uh, an asthma problem and the circulation in the building she was in. And the court said, well, that's not an equal protection issue. That's not an issue of constitutional dimensions. Uh, and there there is a lot of case law saying that prisoners... Uh, can't complain about uh, the housing they're they're given unless it doesn't meet minimal standards of uh, of decent housing. Uh, the other case, it's it's sort of interesting. Uh, he was sitting as a guest judge in the Ninth Circuit. There are so many vacancies on the circuits that there's a lot of uh, shuffling around of people visiting other circuits to sit on panels. Uh, and also, sometimes judges just like take a break and. Uh, once they're confirmed as a circuit judge, they can theoretically sit on any U.S. Court of Appeals or even sit by designation in a district court. Right. Uh, so he was sitting in this Ninth Circuit case, and it involved a transgender instructor at a community college in Arizona. Uh, and uh, she had partially transitioned. That She was presenting as female, uh, identified male at birth, presenting as female, but hadn't had gender reassignment surgery. Uh, and she started to use the women's room at the school, and other women complained about a man being in the women's room. Uh, so the school barred her from using the women's room, uh, and she sued. And after she sued, they also didn't renew her contract. She was a part-time an adjunct professor. So she claimed a, a violation of her rights uh, as a sex discrimination case. And interestingly, the three-judge panel... Uh, did not issue a, uh, an opinion that is identified as being authored by any of the judges on the panel. It was a per curiam memorandum, which means it was probably drafted by a clerk, although theoretically it could have been drafted by any of the judges. But it was probably drafted by a clerk and then approved by the panel. And uh, the opinion finds that based on current federal case law, a transgender person can bring a sex discrimination claim under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act uh, using the sex stereotyping theory dating back to the Price Waterhouse decision from 1989 by the Supreme Court. Uh, and I mean, this is a per curiam. It represents the views of the panel, but it doesn't have any of their individual names on the opinion. But uh, it is interesting that Gorsuch, of course, agrees with that. But then, this is the odd thing. They say, okay. She can sue for sex discrimination uh, on the grounds of sex stereotyping, but the school's argument that they barred her from using the women's room because of safety concerns is sufficient to rebut the prima facie case that she made. And she made a prima facie case that is uh, sort of an initial showing that there is a presumption of discriminatory motivation in excluding her from the women's room. 
But in order to rebut that, all the school has to say is, no, it was for some other reason, and the other reason is safety. Uh, there's no explanation in the case about what exactly the safety concern is. Uh, are they afraid that uh, she's going to attack the other women? Are they afraid the other women are going to attack her? Uh, but they said that was enough to rebut the prima facie case and that nothing uh, that she introduced suggested that it was pretextual in any way, which would be her burden at that point to establish pretext in order to win the case. Uh, so the court dismissed her, her case, ruled against her. Uh, but it's interesting, whoever drafted the opinion dropped a footnote observing that the school made or the parties made no attempt to work out an accommodation, that is, to try to find restroom facilities that she could use, and observing her argument that, after all, she was at greater risk using a men's room dressed as a woman than anyone would be uh, from her dressed as a woman using the women's room. Uh, so that sort of undercuts the reasoning of the court as far as the whole safety thing goes. Right. Uh, so I'm, and there are grounds for some concern that Gorsuch was part of this panel and, and didn't express uh, any reservations about the rather flimsy justification that the school brought into play. I think in terms of evaluating his nomination from the perspective of LBGT uh, rights, the most concerning thing is that he embraces a very broad view of religious exemptions uh, under the Free Exercise Clause and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, he was part of the on-bank panel of the Tenth Circuit in the Hobby Lobby case, which ultimately went to the Supreme Court. Let me just quote here. I've got yeah. this concurrence. You've, got to, you've almost got to hear this to believe it. But he says, All of us must face the problem of complicity all of us must answer for ourselves whether and to what degree we are willing to be involved in the wrongdoing of others. Right. And wrongdoing think, of others means using contraception. I know. You almost think he's talking about standing by to genocide when you use language that strong. But he's talking about employers knowing that their employees might use might uh, obtain birth control with their health insurance coverage. Well, it's, it's, it's more than just that. The, the idea is, uh, in the case of Hobby Lobby, they objected to certain forms of birth control that opponents of abortion believe are tantamount to abortion because they're uh, methods that involve uh, preventing the implantation of the fertilized egg in the uterus. And people who believe that uh, life begins when the sperm fertilizes the egg would say that that's a form of abortion because it's terminating a life that started to develop, uh, and that's based on their religious views about when life begins. Uh, but at any rate, he, uh, he takes a very broad view that people should not be compelled to comply with the law if complying with the law violates their deeply held religious beliefs. Here's, here's this exact quote from the sequel case in 2015. When a law demands that a person do something the person considers sinful and the penalty for refusal is a large financial penalty – then the law imposes a substantial burden on that person's free exercise of religion. Right, and, and one can almost predict how he would rule in another case that may be going to the Supreme Court, uh, which I pointed out in my cover story in the February issue of Law Notes. Uh, there is a cert petition that was filed last summer by the Masterpiece Bake Shop or Cake Shop, uh, which uh, was found to have violated the public accommodations law in Colorado by the State Human Rights Commission when they refused to make a wedding cake for a gay male couple 
who were married out of state and wanted to have their celebration back in state with their friends and relatives. Uh, that was upheld by the Colorado Court of Appeals. The Colorado Supreme Court refused to review it. Uh, the cake shop owner has filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court in July. And sort of surprising that they hadn't announced any decision yet about whether to take the case, but it was listed for discussion in their two conferences during January, and then they sent a request down to the Colorado courts to send up the record in the case. So that's that's certainly a signal that they're seriously discussing it, that they're not going to reject it out of hand. So it's possible that if a cert petition is granted in that case, uh, it might not even be argued this term. It might be argued next term. Uh, let, let's say if the court at its next conference grants votes to grant cert, uh, there are not very many argument dates left because uh, they just announced the March schedule, which includes the uh, Gloucester County case on March 28th, which means there are just a, a handful of argument dates in April, and then they stop hearing arguments until right. next fall. So if cert is granted in this case, it's possible it won't be argued until next fall. Uh, which means that if Gorsuch is confirmed, as seems likely, uh, certainly uh, if, if, if he's not confirmed within the next few months, he's not going to be confirmed, and Trump will be making another appointment, which could be better or worse. Uh, but if he is confirmed, that, that might end up uh, being the first LGBT rights case, uh, and that plays right into his concern about religious objections and exemptions. And sort of what's going on behind all of all of this is the fact that uh, the reality of the ages of three of the sort of el right. oldest justices on the court. I mean, not, everyone's sort of talking about him just replacing Scalia, but if you add him and one other person, things get right. scary. Well, you you never know who the next Supreme Court justice uh, to go off the court will be, but uh, the oldest justices are Justice Kennedy, who's written our big four decisions. Yeah. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, who has voted uh, in support of all those decisions, and Justice Breyer, who's voted in support of all those decisions. Those are the three oldest. Uh, they appoint two appointees of Bill Clinton and one appointee of Ronald Reagan. Uh, Justice Thomas, who was an appointee of the first President Bush, was also one of the youngest people to be appointed to the Supreme Court. So no one's expecting him to retire anytime soon. Uh, there were rumors going around that Justice Kennedy has been talking uh, to some of his former clerks about possibly retiring at the end of next term, which would be uh, at the end of the term that uh, that completes in June of 2018. Uh, but you know, this if this master masterpiece cake shop case is argued next term, I don't think the replacement of Scalia by Gorsuch would change the result because Scalia was in the majority in the Hobby Lobby case, so that, that would probably come out the same. Uh, although the question of who would write it and how broadly they would write it would be another thing. Uh, Justice Alito wrote the opinion for the court in Hobby Lobby, and he rejected the suggestion that the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act could be used to uh, immunize uh, someone who engaged in race discrimination. And Justice Ginsburg in her dissent said, well, there are other kinds of discrimination too, and she cited some cases including one involving sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, the difference is the Masterpiece Cake Shop is an interpretation of Colorado state law. It's the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act has no application. So if the Supreme Court takes it, it could be a vehicle for the court to overrule 
Employment Division versus Smith, which was a Scalia, a, a Scalia, a Scalia opinion uh, holding that the First Amendment Free Exercise Clause does not give people a sort of free-floating, religiously-based exemption from complying with neutral state laws. That is, state laws that don't specifically target religion and then apply to everybody, such as an anti-discrimination law. Uh, and I speculate in my article that given his uh, sort of hard-right originalism and his being closer to Thomas than Scalia, there's a possibility that Gorsuch might be, uh, be willing to cast a deciding vote to overrule Employment Division v. Smith and broaden the constitutional exemption. He is very protective of religious freedom rights. Uh, so it's not surprising uh, that the Democrats uh, in the Senate are talking about uh, strongly opposing him, although we'll have to see if that holds up after the hearings because if he comes across in the hearings as very polished and civilized, uh, he is liable to survive the hearings and, and get confirmed. Uh, but as you say, the next appointment down the road is the one to really be concerned about because that could cement in a six to three Republican majority, uh, depending on uh, you know who retires. One more thing we should note about his record: he wrote an essay in two thousand five where he cited uh, the fight for marriage equality as an example of an overweening addiction to the courtroom by American liberals. Yeah, he uh, he is opposed to. Uh, cause litigation as such. Uh, and, and this is a view that is held by several other justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, the idea that these aren't real cases and controversies. These are really political cases that are brought to get through the courts what you can't get through legislation. And, and what referendum. was the Hobby Lobby case? Uh, the Hobby Lobby case was definitely uh, something along those lines, I would say. Uh, but, I mean, it involved a real plaintiff. Uh, that didn't want to have to comply with uh, the federal regulations. They didn't have trouble finding one. Um, and we're going to talk about, if you're not depressed enough, we're going to talk about some other things that might get to the Supreme Court in our next segment. Um, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk about a concerning situation uh, in Texas that could potentially bring the marriage issue back to the U.S. Supreme Court. We are back discussing Pigeon versus Turner. After a bunch of state elected officials pushed the justices to take another look, the Texas Supreme Court reversed its original decision from September and will now actually hear a case about whether same-sex couples need to be treated equally beyond the mere issuance of marriage license licenses. Yeah, well, this is part of a quite an orchestrated campaign in Texas. Uh, Texas... Uh, the Republican uh, leadership in the Texas state government is very unhappy about marriage equality. Uh, no secret about that. And uh, looking for every opportunity uh, to uh, try to chip away at marriage equality. Uh, this case, actually, its genesis dates way back, like 15 years. Uh, back in uh, 2001, there was a referendum in Houston to amend the city charter to limit who can get uh, employee health benefits. Uh, and this was in response to a move in the city council to extend benefits to the same-sex partners of city employees. So uh, the charter was amended by public vote uh, to have benefits available uh, only to employees, their legal spouses, and their dependent children. Uh, 
and there things stood and uh, you know subsequently marriage equality began to get litigated within a few years uh, same sex couples were getting married in Massachusetts and then in Iowa and New York and California and various other places and finally of course in 2013 the US Supreme Court invalidated uh, section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act and said in no uncertain terms that the uh, federal government had no rational basis not to recognize lawful same-sex marriages. Well, the mayor of Houston at that point, Denise Parker, a longtime lesbian uh, rights advocate, and her uh, city attorney put their heads together and decided if the federal government is required to recognize lawful same-sex marriages, so is the city of Houston. I mean, the federal government's obligation arises under the Fifth Amendment, and the city of Houston's obligation would arise under the Fourteenth Amendment, since it's a political subdivision of a state. Uh, and they said, well, if we, we should be recognizing out-of-state same-sex marriages. I mean, as of 2013, same-sex couples couldn't get married in Texas, but they could go out-of-state and get married. So they came up with this idea of extending health benefits by recognizing the out-of-state same-sex marriages of city employees. If they went out-of-state, got married, brought back a lawful marriage license from out-of-state, they could enroll enroll their partner for health benefits. Uh, This invoked or stimulated a lawsuit by opponents, uh, some taxpayers who brought suit, and they persuaded a state judge to issue a preliminary injunction while the case was pending against the extension of these benefits on the grounds that it violated the Texas Constitution, which banned the recognition of same-sex marriages, and also it banned uh, Texas marriage law, which, uh, and it also it uh, it certainly, in their view, violated the city charter. Although, if these were legally recognized spouses, then there's no violation of the city charter. Uh, at any rate, preliminary injunction issued. The city filed an appeal, and the Texas Court of Appeals just sort of sat on it for a while. And, and I think the, the point was that after the Windsor decision striking down uh, the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, marriage equality litigation exploded across the country, including in Texas. So there were cases pending challenging the state constitutional and statutory provisions that were the basis for this lawsuit. So the Court of Appeals just sat there for a while with the case. They didn't rule one way or the other on uh, whether the preliminary injunction was appropriate or not. But meanwhile, the preliminary injunction is sitting there uh, restricting what the state, what the city can do. And the uh, Court of Appeal immediately reacted after the Obergefell decision uh, in uh, June of 2015. And it uh, ruled at that point that the case should go back to the trial judge for reconsideration in light of Obergefell. They said, all right, the law has changed now. Texas has to recognize uh, same-sex marriages from other, other uh, jurisdictions. But the question whether that requires them to extend benefits to same-sex spouses of city employees is a question for the trial judge to decide. But uh, first, to decide whether to issue a preliminary injunction, you, know, you have to reweigh the question whether the plaintiffs, that is the challengers of the uh, benefits extension, are likely to win on the merits. And that's a different question now because the law has changed. So they sent the case back. And uh, the taxpayers appealed that to the Texas Supreme Court. 
on September 2nd, the Supreme Court announced that it would not review the Court of Appeals decision sending the case back to the trial court in Houston. Uh, and that's where things stood, and everyone thought the case was really over. But then uh, Governor Abbott and uh, the state attorney general, Ken Paxton, uh, filed in support of a request by the taxpayers for reconsideration. Uh, and after Donald Trump was elected, the whole calculus changed because now – this turned into a case that might be used to bring the issue of marriage equality back to the Supreme Court. Uh, it's, it's just a question of timing here. Does it go back to the Supreme Court before or after Trump gets to appoint another justice in addition to filling the, the seat vacated by the death of Justice Scalia? Uh, back when uh, Trump was elected, there was a lot of concern expressed about whether people's same-sex marriages were in trouble. Uh, is the right to marry in the future in trouble? Is the legal status of existing marriages in trouble? Uh, a lot of people, including me, wrote articles suggesting that it was highly unlikely that same-sex marriage was in trouble, that certainly not immediately after Trump takes office and probably not for quite a while, if at all. Uh, but, of course, we all cautioned that down the line, you never know, although the Supreme Court does tend to stand by its decisions, every now and then it decides it has to reverse a decision. And the prime example of that in terms of gay rights is the sodomy laws. Uh, they upheld the Georgia sodomy law in 1986, but then in 2003 they struck down the Texas sodomy law and overruled the old decision. So the Supreme Court sometimes changes its mind. And therefore it is concerning that this case might turn into a vehicle to get the issue of marriage equality back up to the Supreme Court again. Uh, and whether it gets there really depends on how people do in the lower courts. And if the Texas Supreme Court upholds the Court of Appeals in sending the case back to the uh, trial judge in Houston and the trial judge in Houston rules against the taxpayers, then they could appeal the case back up through the Texas court system, and if they lose, file a petition for review at the Supreme Court. Of course, if they win, then the issue will be whether the city of Houston files uh, with the Supreme Court. But uh, either way, if the question gets back up to the Supreme Court, they might see it as just a narrow question of whether same-sex married couples are entitled to the same exact benefits that different-sex married couples are entitled to, or they could view it more broadly as a vehicle to decide whether Obergefell was correctly decided. And if you look at the dissenting opinions in Obergefell, uh, very, very strongly worded, especially by Chief Justice Roberts, who said it had no basis in the Constitution at all, in uh, Justice Thomas's dissenting opinion, saying that it totally misconstrues what the word liberty means in the Constitution. Uh, these were very, very strongly felt views not only that the decision was wrong, but it was illegitimate in some way. Uh, so I wouldn't put it past a new conservative majority on the Supreme Court to use any case that rests at least in part on Obergefell as an occasion to reconsider Obergefell. We should also add I mean, the Texas Supreme Court is an elected court. And they're all Republicans. In a deeply red state. So yes. I think um, – 
you know, it's pretty scary to think about what they might do with this, knowing everything you just said. I mean, they're not they're not dumb. Well, if the Texas Supreme Court uh, ends up reversing the Court of Appeals, leaving the preliminary injunction in place, uh, presumably they wouldn't go further than that. It would definitely go back to the trial judge to decide the case on the merits. So it could be years off before we ended up having a decision on the merits that was then appealed through the Texas court system. On the other hand, you know, one of the justices, they, I guess they probably need four more, right, it's a nine-member court. I mean, yeah. one of them wrote a dis- dissent in September that sort of right. laid out this crazy theory of... Well, it's not such a crazy... I mean, the, the theory is that the Obergefell decision focused on whether same-sex couples have a right to marry and whether their marriages have to be recognized by other states. Uh, and the judge said, all right, if you identify the right to marry as a fundamental right, then obviously the state has to have a compelling justification for denying it, and in cases involving fundamental rights and compelling justifications, the state's restriction of the right usually loses. But he said the question whether employees of the state are entitled to health insurance is not a question of fundamental rights. But again, this this all goes in all of these lawsuits. It goes into how you define, you know, right. and of course, if you come up with a very narrow theory like that, you can you can argue. But the compelling justification uh, Justice Devine cited was procreation. This idea that straight people have children because same-sex couples are denied benefits is completely crazy. Quite frankly, I don't I don't think that was his rationalization. Oh, read it. But, no, I read it. Yeah, <laughs> I read it. But and this procreation theory was crazy in the marriage litigation. It's crazier right. now. Well, it's, it certainly was rejected by the Supreme Court as a justification for denying the right to marry. And in explaining why marriage was a fundamental right, Justice Kennedy listed all the consequences of denying marriage, and one of them was health insurance. Yes. Uh, so uh, I, mean, I think there's, there's a pretty strong argument that the Obergefell should be interpreted, that it, the only reasonable interpretation is that there is an equality of rights and entitlements of married same-sex and different-sex couples. Uh, that is certainly the broad reading that we're looking for in a wide range of cases. For example, the litigation all over the country about the parental pr- presumption that if, if a lesbian mother gives birth, there's a presumption that her same-sex spouse is the legal parent of the child. Uh, we're fighting to establish that. Uh, we, we had a nice victory in Indiana, which is now being appealed to the Indiana Supreme Court by the state. Uh, we had a loss on that in Arkansas. We just had a win in Florida with a very good settlement where the state has uh, agreed to drop its opposition to putting the names of same-sex partners on marriage li- on uh, birth certificates. So, you know, that that's playing right around the country, and that's another issue that could come to the Supreme Court. Uh, the point is that if Gorsuch is uh, approved by the Senate and takes a seat on the court, there's a chance over the next few years that he'll be facing a multitude of LGBT legal issues, uh, transgender rights, of uh, sexual orientation issues, discrimination, benefits, marriage. Uh, and the Supreme Court, considering what a small percentage of the, of the population LGBT people are, the Supreme Court has issued an awful lot of LGBT-related rulings over the past few years. And uh, I, th- I think there are going to be many more in the years to come. Uh, so... You know, this nomination, is this the one to fight do or die? No, uh, I'm not sure. But, you know, on the, on the Texas case, this is one to watch. Keep your eyes on this one. It may take a long time to percolate up, but it might get up there. And one of the things we're all speculating about is 
how will the issue of same-sex marriage get back to the Supreme Court? Here's one possible way. And we uh, talked about it last month or a couple months ago, but the Arkansas case remains a possibility as well. Right. You know, from that state Supreme Court. That's possible. All right. Um, we'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll stay in Texas but talk about some positive news and discuss a federal court letting a transgender employee sue her employer under Title VII for denying coverage of her transition-related care. We are back discussing Baker v. Aetna Life Insurance Company. A transgender woman was denied coverage by her employer's health plan for a surgical procedure to treat her gender dysphoria. She then filed a sex discrimination claim under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Anti-Discrimination Provisions of the Affordable Care Act, Employee Retirement Income and Security Act, or ERISA, and President Obama's executive order which banned gender identity discrimination by federal contractors. How did the judge treat all these claims, Art? Uh, the judge rejected most of them. <laughs> uh, the, the news in the case, uh, this is Judge Sidney A. Fitzwater of the U.S. District Court, the notorious U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. I say notorious because one of uh, Judge Fitzwater's colleagues, uh, Judge O'Connor, has twice issued national preliminary injunctions yeah, against the enforcement of gender identity discrimination uh, rules or rules. So, uh, and that, in fact, uh, was cited by Judge Fitzwater in turning down the uh, Affordable Care Act claim. So, you know, th this, is, this, is, this is really somewhat complicated. I mean, whenever you talk about the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, uh, known by its acronym as ERISA. Uh, A lot of lawyers are involved. Lawyers blanch. <laughs> lawyers, if, if they're not tax lawyers, they yes. tend to, oh, my God, ERISA. Uh, but ERISA has uh, many provisions that don't directly have to do with taxes. I mean, the tax aspect of it is that uh, there is favorable tax treatment for uh, employee benefits plans in terms of exclusion from taxable income and things of that sort. Uh, but ERISA also has a non-discrimination provision. Uh, however, uh, Judge Fitzwater found, and this seems to be consistent with ERISA case law, the non-discrimination provision does not deal with the kinds of discrimination that we talk about under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. That is, discrimination because of personal characteristics like race or religion or sex, etc. Uh, it has to do with discriminating against employees uh, to prevent them from getting benefits to which they're entitled under an employee benefit plan. Uh, so uh, he uh, rejected the idea that turning down an employee, and there were two benefits claims here. There was for failure to cover the procedure and for failure to pay for uh, short-term disability uh, for the recovery time after the procedure was performed. Uh, so it's under two different employee benefit plans, both uh, given by the employer, L3 Communications, to their employees, both administered by Aetna, the life insurance company, which also underwrote the benefits. Uh, so... The ERISA claim fell out uh, because the court said this, this isn't the kind of discrimination claim that's covered by ERISA. More potentially significant was the Affordable Care Act claim uh, because uh, under the Affordable Care Act, the Department of Health and Human Services has issued an, a regulation saying that discrimination by insurers uh, and health care providers uh, 
will violate the Affordable Care Act if it's discrimination because of sex. And in the regulation, they interpreted because of sex to include gender identity. Although the regulation itself is not totally clear on whether uh, these health insurance plans have to cover transition. Uh, but at any rate, there's a colorable argument that they should have to cover transition. The problem here is that this regulation was scheduled to go into effect on January 1st of this year, and the benefits claim denial was uh, quite, a, quite a while back. It, it was uh, in uh, 2015, and so it was well before this regulation was to go into effect. And furthermore, Judge O'Connor, uh, Judge Fitzwater's colleague, has issued a nationwide injunction against its enforcement. So that's sort of complicated, and, and part of his reasoning was that he felt that uh, the application to uh, gender identity was not consistent with the statute. Uh, that Congress only intended to ban traditional sex discrimination. Uh, so uh, he refused to uh, to allow that cause of action to go forward. The argument that it also violated the president's executive order because the company is a, a federal contractor, uh, you, you don't enforce executive orders by lawsuits in federal district court. You... Uh, enforce executive orders by filing a complaint with the agency that's providing the funding and going through their Office of Civil Rights, et cetera, et cetera. So this really wasn't an actionable claim either. And that left Title VII. Uh, Title VII applies to discrimination by employers with regard to terms and conditions of employment, which would include employee benefits. And the uh, courts have taken a rather broad view of the application of Title VII to employee benefits plans. Uh, you can't sue Aetna, the insurance company, under Title VII because it's not the employer. It's acting as an agent of the employer in a sense because it's administering the benefits, but its role is to interpret the terms of the plan and grant or deny benefits based on its interpretation of the plan. Um, and so uh, it can't be sued under Title VII. Only the employer can be sued. But the employer can be sued. And Judge Fitzwater accepted the argument that there is a pretty strong body of case law out there now holding that gender identity discrimination may violate Title VII. Uh, so he allowed that part of the claim to go forward, uh, but not the part of the Title VII claim against Aetna. This motion did not address another aspect of the litigation, and that is Baker's suit against Aetna in its role as plan administrator uh, on the claim that it wrongfully denied the benefits, that that violated the terms of the employee benefit plan itself. That wasn't the subject of this motion, and so that remains uh, in the trial. But the bottom line news for transgender employees who are covered by employee benefit plans is that at least one federal district judge in the notorious Northern District of Texas has said that if they are denied uh, a claim for coverage of a procedure that their doctor has said is a medically necessary procedure, uh, they can both sue the insurance company or the claims administrator for violating the terms of the plan, and they can sue their employer under Title VII for sex discrimination. Now, the court didn't really premise its Title VII ruling on the idea that this is gender identity discrimination. What they did is, uh, and you, you have to understand that for purposes of this kind of a motion, they have to accept as true the factual allegations in the complaint. And so Baker alleged that she was turned down 
for a, uh, a breast implant procedure uh, because she was identified male at birth, whereas someone who was identified as female at birth would be covered for a mastectomy. She said these are analogous procedures, and the only reason she was turned down was because she was born male, identified male at birth. If she had been identified female at birth, there would have been no problems with approving uh, any procedure involving her breasts. So it's sex discrimination, and Fitzwater was willing to go along with this as sex discrimination on that basis. All right, we will take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll discuss a tragic case arising out of a gay man falling overboard on a cruise ship. We are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. A federal judge said the surviving spouse of a gay man that fell overboard after an argument with security officers on a cruise ship can sue Royal Caribbean Cruises for intentional infliction of emotional distress. Can you tell us what happened, Art? Yeah, this is a sad one. Uh, Eric Albaz and Bernardo Garcia, same-sex spouses, uh, decided to go on a cruise to celebrate Albaz's birthday, and they took a Royal Caribbean cruise in the Caribbean. Uh, And unfortunately, it seems, uh, according to the complaint, that Elbaz filed in this case that they were subject to anti-gay harassment by the crew and by fellow passengers, and it was really a mess. And uh, as a result of their complaint, some security officers came to their stateroom, and they got into an argument with Garcia, and the court's opinion is a bit vague about what happened, but Garcia ended up falling off the balcony of their stateroom to a lower level where he was clinging to a lifeboat, Uh, hanging over the edge, and uh, the attempt by security officers to save him failed. He fell into the ocean. Uh, Elbaz uh, tried to persuade them to stop the ship, to try to rescue him, but they refused to stop the ship. Uh, They sent a distress call to the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard showed up, but they couldn't find him. He was lost at sea. Uh, So Elbaz filed a multi-count complaint, against uh, Royal Caribbean. He uh, sought uh, damages for wrongful death. He sought damages for negligent infliction of emotional distress and intentional infliction of emotional distress. And this is sort of complicated, but what law controls when you die at sea? Yeah, there's a, a statute called the Death on the High Seas Act, and it preempts normal tort law. Uh, if, if someone dies on the high seas, which is defined as outside the territorial limits beyond the three-mile limit from the U.S. coast. And this was at sea. And uh, so if you're going to sue in a U.S. court, you can't bring a wrongful death claim. You have to sue under the statute, which has very limited remedy, uh, basically expenses and costs. It, it doesn't cover claims like emotional distress or the kinds of uh, claims that you would normal, normally find in a wrongful death action under state law. And his attempt to sue for negligence under, I think it was the law of the Bahamas, failed too because it turns out that you can't uh, supplement a uh, DOHSA action with the law of a foreign country. So it really boiled down to the negligent and intentional infliction of emotional distress claims, which wouldn't be preempted. And the court said as to a negligent infliction of emotional distress claim, 
in order to bring such a claim, uh, the plaintiff has to show that they were personally, physically injured by the negligent action or that they were in the zone of danger at the time, and so uh, their emotional distress could be attributed to the negligence of the defendant. And the court found that Elbaz was not in the zone of danger, which is sort of odd. He was standing right next to his husband during this whole encounter. But they said he could sue for intentional infliction of emotional distress, but that goes to the entire experience that he had on the ship and all the harassment and everything else. Uh, The cruise line said, but the conduct of our people was not outrageous enough to meet the standard for intentional infliction of emotional distress. It has to be really totally outrageous and beyond the bounds of civilization. And of course, so I can't, I can't determine that on a pretrial motion. That is a factual issue that has to be developed Although at a there trial. There were some pretty um, atrocious allegations. Oh, yeah. It was, might... it was all uh, calling them names and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this case will go forward on intentional infliction of emotional distress, although I think it's, it's likely, uh, having survived the uh, pretrial motion on that claim, that uh, the insurance company for Royal Caribbean will probably offer a settlement. Right. So uh, we'll see if anything ensues on that. But, you know, it, it sounds like Royal Caribbean is not the line to go on if you're going to celebrate your, uh, your, your husband's birthday. Sigh. All right, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in March. Mm-hmm.